0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at loe.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks.
1: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The Bush administration proposes new rules to measure power plant pollution, Critics say the changes would be a bad deal for public health and cleaning the plants would be cheaper.
2: The bottom line is a large plant can cost the public about $700 million a year. Asking them to spend $10 or $15 million a year to put on a scrubber, that seems like a bargain to me.
1: Also, a sweet new deal for sweaty commuters. Pedaling to work on two wheels now gets you a tax break.
3: It's much less expensive than driving a car, but it's not free bicycles cost money, there's bicycle maintenance. Uh, All of these would be uh, eligible expenses that the employer could offset with no tax consequences to the bike commuter.
1: These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. The Bush administration is set to propose new rules for old power plants that burn coal. The rules are intended to streamline operations, but critics charge they violate the Clean Air Act. One of the leading critics is Eric Schaefer. Six years ago, Schaefer was the official at the EPA in charge of enforcing federal environmental laws, but he quit, protesting that the Bush administration was preventing him from doing his job. Now Schaefer is the head of an EPA watchdog group, the Environmental Integrity Project.
2: What the administration wants to do now is basically rewrite the law, change the law here at the last minute, and they would do that by changing the definition of pollution increase, and the long and short of it is, this change would allow a power plant to increase their emissions by thousands of tons a year, without having to get permits and without having to put on pollution controls.
1: Now, as I understand it, what they're proposing is they want to, they want to say that if a power plant uh, updates or makes a major modification, uh, they count their pollution not over a course of a year, but over an hour.
2: Yeah, and here's why that matters. Let's say I have a car, and and then I drive 50 miles an hour, and that's my normal rate of speed. But I'm, of course, only using it a few hours a day. Let's say I take the same car, and suddenly I'm driving it all the time. Well, I'm going to burn a lot more gasoline, and, of course, I'm going to generate more emissions. Uh, what the administration basically wants to do is let you take that car, and instead of driving it a few hours a day, drive it all the time. So if you're uh, tooling along at 50 miles an hour... They would say, well, you're still at 50 miles an hour. Even though you're driving a lot more, um, we're going to pretend those extra emissions don't exist.
1: So if this proposed rule change did go into effect, how much extra pollution do you think would be um, emitted?
2: Some plants could double their emissions under this new rule. So if you're a plant that's got 30,000, 40,000 tons of sulfur dioxide a year now, you could go to you know, 70 000 or 80,000 tons. It'll vary by region because some states have their own rules that are pretty strict. Well One thing that's hard to grasp is these are the oldest, dirtiest plants. Many of them have never had the most basic kind of pollution control equipment installed. Okay, They're the so-called grandfathered plants, and they've been operating without scrubbers, which have been required for new plants for 30, 40 years. So it really matters when these, these oldest and dirtiest plants get to suddenly double their operating time and just thumb their nose at the law and say, ha-ha, you can't catch me because even though my emissions have doubled, my hourly emissions are somehow bumping along at the same rate. And that's what this rule would do.
1: I was looking at the cost of scrubbers, and I didn't realize that $300, 400000000 million per plant?
2: Yeah, that's a scrubber for a large baseload plant. But again, you know, those costs can sound scary. What happens though is the company will take that investment in pollution control technology and they'll of course borrow the money at very low interest rates and they'll roll that cost over about a twenty or thirty year period. So the true cost of putting a scrubber on is I don't know, ten to fifteen million dollars a year if you look at the annualized costs. It's actually much lower. The other thing to remember is that according to the White House, a ton of sulfur dioxide cost the public health about $7,000 a year, each ton. Some of these plants put out 100,000 tons a year of sulfur dioxide. So you're looking at a public health cost of $700 million a year, and that's because the pollution from these plants creates fine particles that get into your lungs and trigger lung diseases and heart diseases and cause premature death. And so the bottom line is a large plant can cost the public about $700 million a year. Asking them to spend 10 or $15 million a year to put on a scrubber, that seems like a bargain to me. Uh, it does cost money to do the right thing. It's not free. And when it's not required, it's not the kind of thing that power plants are going to do voluntarily. Um, I, I wish I could tell you on a lot of environmental debates, there really are two sides. And while I may passionately argue one position, I can kind of understand the advocates on the other side, and and you can hope to reach some kind of compromise. I just don't see that here. I don't see that here. This is nothing but a power play uh, at the last minute with really no public policy argument behind it. something that's going to increase pollution and make people sicker. You still have plenty of friends in the EPA, right? Oh, sure I do. Just talked to one this morning, in fact. Yeah,
1: What do they say about this?
2: They're disgusted. Um, really disgusted. This rule was opposed, I think it's fair to say, by just about every uh, career civil servant at EPA. They know it's environmentally outrageous and legally very fishy and likely to be withdrawn by the next administration. So putting this out at the end is is really kind of, uh, I don't know, It's I I guess a last gasp. I keep thinking of the Terminator, you know, the... uh, The Bush administration has been taken to court on clean air rollback after clean air rollback. And by and large, the courts have blasted the administration's efforts to weaken the Clean Air Act. And uh, you turn around and here's one more rule, like crawling over the fence, like like one of those robots out of the Terminator. It's like you you can't do anything to to stop these guys until they're finally out of town.
1: So you mean like uh, hasta la vista, baby? It, yeah,
2: that's right. Um, this won't be the only rule they try to get away with. I expect there will be kind of a midnight run of, of bad regulations that are on the industry's wish list, and they'll be throwing more of these over the fence uh, in, in their last days. But what a way to leave EPA by parking these, uh, you know, these really bad environmental rules on the doorstep of the next administration. What a, what a legacy.
1: Eric Schaefer resigned as the Chief of Regulatory Enforcement at the EPA in 2002. He's now the head of the Environmental Integrity Project. How much is a mountain vista worth to you? How about the value of waves breaking on the shore? Pavan Sukdev is putting a price tag on the wonders of nature for the European Commission and the German government. They wanted to find out the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity, and called on Sukdev to quantify them. Pavan Sukdev is a managing director of Deutsche Bank. His first report deals with the cost of deforestation, cost he says, dwarf the current global financial meltdown
5: we found that the rate of loss of the forest, and therefore the rate of loss of the services that forests deliver to people, that's food, fiber, fuel, flood prevention, drought control, ecotourism, bioprospecting, etc., etc., uh, that came to something of the order of two to four and a half trillion dollars per year. Compared to that, my estimates of the financial capital lost to the uh, the Wall Street banks and to the city banks here in London is of the order of one to one and a half trillion. So, you know, you take your pick. Another way of looking at it is that if we let this carry on, then by 2050, every year, we would be losing 7% of GDP in terms of public welfare. From these forests, and of course, there will be more to come because we are now looking at other biomes, like the coastal mangroves, which we did not consider, and uh, coral reefs, which we have not yet studied in detail, though we are collecting good information on that.
1: How do you quantify the economic
5: benefits from a, a coral reef? Yeah, and that's a very good question. Now, now take a couple of examples. Today, we have got uh, cures for Alzheimer's disease and for cancer being explored respectively from a worm that is found on a coral reef and and from a creature that lives on coral reefs. Now, we know what kind of potential benefits that would be. Uh, We know the, the nature of these markets. We also know the budget that pharmaceutical concerns spend on bioprospecting. So these two enable us to work out, all right, so how much of that budget would be spent going forward on coral reef and how much of the potential income of those companies would be as a result of new cures found. Just imagine the scale and size of a cancer cure and a cure for Alzheimer's disease. It's huge economically. You know, when bankers traditionally think of, of green, they think of,
1: well, money. And, and I was looking at your, your background. You're an economist, a managing director and the head of one of the world's biggest banks, Deutsche Bank. And, and yet, I guess you're
5: a tree hugger? <laughs> I think that's a bit extreme, but <laughs> I'm certainly. I, you know, what I, I sometimes get asked, how the hell do you reconcile this? You know, how do you, how do you sort of reconcile the fact that you have these environmental leanings and at the same time you're a financial markets managing director? Well, you know, are you a capitalist? Are you not? And I, my response usually is, "Yep, I'm a total capitalist." But but what I, you, you, what I really mean by saying I'm a total capitalist is that I believe in all forms of capital. I believe in financial capital, I believe in human capital, and I believe in natural capital. I don't discriminate one from the other. You'd be amused to hear this. Um, a friend of mine in Singapore many, many years ago, 15 years ago, asked me this very simple question. Look, you're a banker and all that. Tell me, why are some things worth money and some things not? How come that I can watch a sunset for free and how come I have to pay for a movie? And then I thought and thought about that. I said, this is a deep and fundamental point. There is this aspect of ignoring value when it doesn't transact in markets. And that's the key, because we have psychologically convinced ourselves that what's valuable is what transacts for money. But very often what's valuable is other things like friendship and law and order and education and enjoyment of, of nature and so on. We need to be a bit more holistic in the way we think about these things. Well, I
1: wanted you to put, put on your
5: banker's hat again and, yeah, and, sure. and,
1: and talk money. What is it going to cost to
5: conserve, to, to save this this you know, natural wealth? It's actually not that much. Now, I'll give you one example. Uh, you know that there are upwards of 100,000 conservation areas, or protected areas, as they're called, and they cover roughly 11% of the Earth's landmass. Now, various studies that have been done on conservation areas are giving us the message that we are spending too little on making them effective. In other words, you may call them conservation areas, but the reality is you're still losing density, you're still losing biodiversity. To make them effective, we need to spend something like 40 to $50 billion per annum extra. Okay, now how much is 40 to $50 billion? Well, you know that the current size of the U.S. financial system bailout is $700 billion thereabouts, and that maybe if we add up the bits and pieces in Europe and others, it's about a trillion So we're talking about a very small, relatively a very small amount of money being spent to secure services which, in utility terms, are worth $5 trillion. It's worth doing simply because the return on investment is so good. Well, Mr. Suktev, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed.
1: It's been great talking to you. Pavan Suktev is a managing director at Deutsche Bank and head of the project The Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity. Just ahead, vitamin D. D for deficient. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, drill, baby, drill, but not for gas or oil. First, this note on emerging science from Sandra Larson. Waste not,
6: want not. The Water Department of San Antonio, Texas, certainly takes that adage seriously and keeps finding creative ways to reuse what residents flush down their toilets. San Antonio Water System, or SAWS, already recycles liquid from sewage to use in landscaping and manufacturing. Some of the solids go into compost, and now they're going to reap other benefits from the sewage by harvesting the methane gas generated by solid waste and selling it as fuel. SAWS recently signed a deal with Amaresco, a Massachusetts-based energy services company. Amaresco will build and operate a new facility in San Antonio to capture some million and a half cubic feet of methane a day. They'll sell the gas to power companies and pay a royalty to SAWS. Methane from the city's sewage is normally burned. Now, instead of going up in smoke, the gas is expected to earn about $250,000 a year for SAWS. That means better air quality, lower operating costs, and lower water bills for ratepayers. Other communities already capture methane from animal waste or landfills. Some even use human waste to power sewage treatment plants. But San Antonio will be the first U.S. city to convert its sewage to methane on a large scale and sell as energy. When the facility opens, San Antonio will be recycling more than 90% of its human waste, giving a new meaning to people power. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Sandra Larson.
1: There are a few things you should know about vitamin D. First, it's not a vitamin. In the body, it acts like a hormone, where it plays a critical role in making bones strong, beefing up the immune system and regulating the growth of cells. Not having enough vitamin D may increase your chances of getting certain cancers, osteoporosis, diabetes, even Parkinson's disease. And the Centers for Disease Control says 70% of us don't get enough. Vitamin D is called the sunshine vitamin because without the sun's rays, our skin can't make it. And the darker your skin, the harder it is to get the D you need. Which is why African Americans are twice as likely to have insufficient amounts of vitamin D than whites. This much we know, but as Living on Earth's Ashley ahern reports, there's still a
7: lot left to learn about vitamin D.
6: Deep breath in and out.
7: It's a routine checkup at Mattapan Community Health Center in Boston. Samuel Clemens and his doctor, Douglas Beebold, talk about allergies, sleeping problems, a recent asthma attack, and then Dr. Beebold turns to the subject of his patient's vitamin D levels.
8: Below 30 is considered insufficient.
6: Below 20 is considered deficient. And uh, Mr. Clemens was at 8.
7: That's 8 nanograms per milliliter of blood. Dr. Beebold wants to get Clemens' level up to 40, so he has him taking over 7,000 units of vitamin D per day. That's 17 times more than the government recommends for adults. The majority of patients at Mattapan Community Health Center are African American, and 90% of the patients here are vitamin D deficient. In response to emerging research, the clinic routinely tests patients' vitamin D levels. Dr. Beebold tells Clemens, who is African American, why he needs to supplement his vitamin D intake.
6: The supplement is taking the place of the sun. Oh, if we lived in a place where there was stronger uh, sun, mm-hmm. then you would be able to make it in your skin.
8: Oh, But since oh, wow. we live uh, uh, in an area where the sun is so weak, yeah, uh, and because you have melanin in the skin, in which
6: the is a potent sunblocker, mm. we need to replace it okay. uh, with a supplement. Oh, I never heard it put that way. Okay.
7: It's thought that people evolving in equatorial regions, where the sun's UV rays are the strongest, developed more melanin in their skin for protection. Dr. Michael Holick is an expert on vitamin D at the Boston University School of Medicine. He says in places where the sun's rays are weaker, people with more melanin are at a disadvantage when it comes to getting the vitamin D they need.
9: It's like wearing a sunscreen with a sun protection factor of 15, which reduces your ability to make vitamin D in your skin by 99%. And that's why most African Americans are at extremely high risk of vitamin D deficiency.
7: Hollick believes vitamin D deficiency may be associated with the higher rate of cancer among African Americans.
9: Vitamin D helps control cell growth, and that's why we think that it will reduce risk of many deadly cancers like prostate, breast, and colon by as much as 50%. And African Americans are at much higher risk of having these cancers, and we believe that it's in part due to their vitamin D deficiency.
7: In its role as a hormone, vitamin D travels all over our body, delivering messages to activate genes and control cell growth. If a cell turns cancerous, vitamin D delivers the instructions for that cell to self-destruct. Not enough vitamin D, and that cancer cell might keep reproducing. Hollick's research shows that if you're obese, you're twice as likely to be deficient in vitamin D, although researchers don't agree on the mechanism behind this relationship. We're just beginning to understand the science of vitamin D, and the research is sparking some controversy. Many doctors say light-skinned people need 15 minutes of sun each day to get their vitamin D. But dermatologists are concerned that exposure to sunlight may lead to skin cancer. And Dr. Hollick has come under fire for getting 5% of his research funding from a group that represents the indoor tanning industry. There's not a clear consensus on a recommended dose of vitamin D either. Some experts say that adults of all skin colors should take 1,000 units of vitamin D per day, and that some individuals may need more. But the government recommends much less, 200 units of vitamin D per day for newborns to teenagers, 400 for adults, and 600 for people over 70. Dr. Mary Frances Picciano is a senior research scientist in the Office of Dietary Supplements at the National Institutes of Health. We don't have a good
3: history of people taking high doses for long
7: periods of time. So I am very fearful of toxicity with all this enthusiasm, quite frankly. The National Academy of Sciences plans to re-examine recommended vitamin D levels by 2010. Back at Mattapan Community Health Center, a group of Caribbean immigrants sits in the waiting room. By the end of their first winter in Boston, they're just as deficient in vitamin D as the patients who have lived here all their lives. Dr. Aze Young is the president of Matapan Community Health Center.
10: Mattapan has some of the most serious health problems in Boston. And once we learn that vitamin D deficiency is uh, a major um, disease, For our community, we were very concerned about getting everybody on board, uh, making sure that all of our patients have a sufficient level
7: of vitamin D. But it's not just the patients that are concerned about vitamin D. As an African-American, it's on Dr. Young's mind as well.
10: My doctor said to me that uh, we should take your vitamin D level because uh, African-Americans are at high risk for being vitamin D deficient. I had a dismal uh, 12. Yeah, My level was 12 nanograms per
7: milliliter. Now Dr. Young takes 3,000 units of vitamin D per day. That's about three times what most vitamin D experts recommend. But her levels were so low, that's what it took to bring them up. I'm over 40, yeah. And do you feel
10: different? I feel wonderful. I can bounce out of a chair. I can walk without any problem. And also, I sleep better. It has made a big difference in my life, and I've I've been spreading the
7: word in any kind of way we can. Dr. Young is working to raise awareness about vitamin D deficiency nationwide, and research continues on the specific health benefits of vitamin D. But with more evidence that vitamin D deficiency may be associated with diseases like cancer, type 2 diabetes, and Parkinson's, it's clear that people need to take vitamin D supplements. Just how much we need to take is an open research question. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern in Mattapan, Massachusetts.
1: to our energy needs could be right under our noses, or more accurately, right under our feet. It's geothermal energy, and advocates say by mining the Earth's heat, we can release a virtually inexhaustible supply of clean power, which requires no fossil fuels, produces little in the way of greenhouse gases, and can generate electricity about as cheaply as burning coal. It's simple. Drill a hole in a hot spot and tap the heated water and steam that comes out. Geothermal is a proven technology. There are geopowered plants around the world. One in Italy has been producing energy for over a 100 years. But the United States is by far the world geothermal leader. We get as much electricity from geothermal energy as solar and wind combined. And the Department of Interior has big plans for geothermal. It just announced it's opening up 190 million acres of federal land in 12 western states to geothermal development. That's an area twice the size of California. Ray Brady is the energy team leader for the Interior Department's Bureau of Land Management. Right now, we have uh,
11: just over 1,200 megawatts of geothermal capacity. That's enough electricity to power approximately 1.2 million homes. We could potentially increase that production by five-fold by the year 2015, By 2025, that capacity could potentially power 12 million homes.
1: The plan permits private energy companies to bid on public land. Half the revenue from the leases would go to the state, a quarter to the federal government, and a quarter to local counties. We're talking big bucks. Just three geothermal leases recently went for $52 million. Of course, being public land, the 190 million acres include some of the most environmentally sensitive open spaces in the country. Ray Brady says the Department of the Interior has come up with a programmatic environmental impact statement that puts many of the areas off limits to geothermal exploitation. And
11: these would include all wilderness areas, wilderness study areas, uh, sensitive resource lands, uh, areas that are designated as national parks, national monuments, national conservation areas, etc., So so there is a lot of the very uh, sensitive resource lands that are not available for geothermal leasing. So you're not going to tap
1: into Old Faithful? We would not, no. Mining all that heat energy in the earth is one thing. Turning it into electricity is another. Ray Brady acknowledges geothermal plants will have environmental impacts. There will be sur- uh,
11: surface facilities. Uh, there will be wells and well pads. There will be uh, pipelines that transmit the, uh, the hot fluids and steam to the uh, generating facility. There will be the plant facility itself. There will be access roads. Try to s- keep the footprint to the minimum possible. However, there will be surface disturbance, yes.
1: And there will need to be new transmission lines to get the electricity to market. Thousands of miles of overhead lines are already being built in western states. But there are concerns about the environment under the ground as well. There are fears geothermal plants could trigger earthquakes.
11: You know, many of these geothermal resources are in geologically active areas. So there's some likelihood that that might potentially occur. And and that's another one of the reasons that you are re-injecting fluids back into the ground to ensure that you have a stable geologic environment.
1: Recirculating the water back into the ground also solves two other problems. Geothermal hot water can be highly acidic and slightly radioactive. But as ambitious as the federal government's new 190 million acre geothermal plan is, It pales in comparison to the potential promise of a new technology called enhanced geothermal energy. Michael Fahler is a senior research scientist at MIT and a corporate geothermal consultant.
9: The idea is to to drill holes and make a man-made geothermal system. And so what we do is we drill a hole and we use something called hydraulic fracturing to create a fracture system that, that water can flow through. And then we drill another well into that fracture system. So now we have two wells that are drilled into a fracture system. We inject water into one of them, um, and and it flows through the fractures, uh, absorbs heat from the earth, and it comes up hot. And then we can take the heat from that water and convert it into energy. How long can an enhanced geothermal well last? How long is its lifespan? The hope is that a a given well pair, you need at least two wells, could last 20 to 30 years. When people look at how they might develop a field, they'd think of developing several well pairs over time, so that as one well pair started phasing out, um, your power plant would still be usable, have a usable lifespan, and it basically extend the life of your, of your geothermal resource within the area. So in that way, you could, you could go on for probably several
1: centuries in, in a given region. Potentially, enhanced geothermal opens up the entire planet for energy production, MIT researchers estimate that the Earth's usable geothermal energy could supply the world's needs for a quarter of a million years.
9: Professor Fahler. I don't think geothermal can completely solve the energy problem, but I think it can t- contribute to the mix, um, and I'm hopeful that it will. Google is investing in geothermal now, so you know I think um, you know we're seeing not only government, but entrepreneurs getting interested in this technology.
1: Professor Fahler emphasizes enhanced geothermal is still just experimental. But stay tuned, it's hot. Among the Earth's geothermal sweet spots are areas where volcanic activity is high. They're not places people ordinarily live, but awe-inspiring features of our planet, also featured in the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape. It's a compilation of geological terms edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Gwartney, and an occasional series on living on Earth. Today, John Daniels' definition of stratovolcano.
12: Stratovolcano. Stratovolcanoes, also called composite or cone volcanoes, are known for their stature as mountains and for their variety of utterance. Venting at times pyroclastic, fire-broken, particulates, as Mount St. Helens did in 1980, and at other times exuding lava, a stratovolcano develops a layered composition as it grows. The steeply bedded ash and cinders of its pyroclastic explosions tend to give it a conical form, while its gentler expressions of lava provide structural stability. All the major Pacific Rim volcanoes are stratovolcanoes. By present measurements, it takes anywhere from roughly 20,000 years, St. Helens, to more than half a million years, Hood and Rainier, to build a stratovolcano of respectable size. Some erupt so exuberantly that they self-destruct, Mount Mazama, a 12,000 foot peak in the southern Oregon Cascades, composed of several overlapping volcanoes, emptied its magma chamber and blew off its upper 4,000 feet, 12 cubic miles of rock, in a single day some 6,800 years ago, collapsing into a caldera we call Crater Lake.
1: John Daniel lives and writes in the hills just outside of Eugene, Oregon. His definition of stratovolcano comes from the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Guartney. on our website or get a download for your mp3 player the address is loe.org that's loe.org there you'll also find pictures and more information about our stories and show we'd particularly like to hear from you now because next time on living on earth we'll be featuring what you think the new president's environmental priorities should be and what the new administration should do about energy in its first hundred days our email address is comments at loe.org That's comments at LOE.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-218-9988. That's 1-800-218-9988. Your ideas, next time on Living on Earth. Coming up, how the chain gang can earn a tax credit. Keep listening to Living on Earth.
4: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Earl Blumenauer has spent the last seven years in Congress peddling an idea whose time has finally come a a $20-a-month federal tax credit for commuters who bike to work. The Oregon Democrat, founder of the Congressional Bike Caucus, saw his bike bill become law as part of the $700 billion Wall Street bailout. But no thanks to the Oregon Democrat, he voted against the bailout and his own bill. Earl Blumenauer joins me by phone from Washington. Congressman, thank you. Absolutely, my pleasure. So how does it work? You bike to work and you get a savings on your tax.
3: Well, currently, uh, the tax code uh, enables an employer to favor people who drive to work by giving them free parking, a value of over $2,400 a year, and it's not a taxable benefit. You can get a transit pass and get over $100 a month tax-free. But if you are burning calories instead of fossil fuel, uh, that all comes out of your own pocket. And if your employer would uh, give you some money to offset the cost, that would be taxable to you. We've changed the law, finally, uh, so that the employer can give you $240 a year tax-free to offset the real costs of bike commuting. It's much less expensive than driving a car, but it's not free. Bicycles cost money. There's bicycle maintenance. uh, Some people need shower facilities, or I'm from Portland, Oregon, where it rains all the time, so we need rain gear. All of these would be uh, eligible expenses that the employer could offset with no tax consequences to the bike commuter. And it was your bill. It was indeed.
1: Now, Congressman, you oppose the bailout bill, right? I did. Mm-hmm. So you you voted for the bicycle commuter tax credit before you voted against it.
3: <laughs> you could say that. Yes, and uh, uh, each time that it passed the house, it actually passed the house five different times. It was part of important uh, energy provisions that I've worked for uh, dealing not just with bicycles, but with solar and wind energy, for instance, but they didn't add to the deficit. They were paid for, uh, as the the term goes. This massive addition to the bailout bill added $100 billion to the deficit. And frankly, uh, I didn't feel comfortable uh, with the bailout provisions because as it was being explained to Congress and the American public, it was too much for the wrong people to do the wrong things. So I ended up voting against a bill that contained some things that I have fought uh, hard for. How many members of the Congressional Bike Caucus? Well, we have over 200 members now. Uh, it's bike partisan, I will say. Uh, uh, it has both Republican and Democratic members. Uh, and we are promoting sound policies for improving cycling. Boy, if
1: you put a Democrat and a Republican on a bike built for two, it would be one of the few times they'd actually be going in the same direction. <laughs>
3: Well said. Well, we find actually that everybody has a bike story. Uh, It's been fun. I I started the bike caucus when I went back there because it was was pretty partisan, not very pleasant at times. But when we worked together on cycling legislation, it wasn't so much red state, blue state, uh, liberal, conservative. Uh, We were able to find Republicans who would work with us for instance, in the last transportation bill, we had a Safe Routes to School program, two-thirds of a billion dollars to help kids be able to walk and bike safely to school on their own, um, which is helping to uh, fight childhood obesity, uh, traffic congestion around schools, and, and obviously save energy.
1: Boy, it gives new meaning to the idea of uh, pedaling power on Capitol Hill.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Oregon Democrat Earl
1: Blumenauer is the founder of the Congressional Bike Caucus and the principal sponsor of the Bicycle Commuter Tax Credit. Well, maybe even with a tax break, bikes aren't your ride. Maybe scooters are more your speed. In Europe, 30 million people use scooters. In the U.S., it's just one million, including Spectrum Radio's Prachi Patel Pred. <laughs>
0: My brand new, bright yellow scooter arrived a few months ago. Since then, doing groceries or going to the post office have stopped feeling like chores. I can't wait to strap on my helmet and scoot around town running errands. At the local library one afternoon, a short, middle-aged woman approached me soon after I put my scooter on its stand. It's very cute, yeah. The woman didn't want to be named, but I asked her if she'd consider buying a scooter.
10: I probably don't because I commute quite a ways to work, so all I would do it for is around town, which I don't do that much anyway, but otherwise I would. If I worked in town, I would.
0: Luckily, I work from home, and most of my driving is on city streets. Speed limits around here are between 25 to 40 miles per hour, so I'm not slowing traffic down. That's not to say that my scooter can't go fast. Its 150 cubic centimeter engine packs quite a punch and could take me up to 60 miles per hour. But I didn't buy the scooter for speed. I bought it because it was cheaper than a car, more fun, and much easier to park around town. And I wanted to reduce my carbon footprint. My scooter gives me about 65 miles per gallon. That's three times the fuel efficiency of the average U.S. car. Roughly, that means three times fewer carbon dioxide emissions. But what about other emissions? I decided to investigate.
12: Hi, this is Carl Simon.
0: Carl Simon is with the Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Transportation and Air Quality. He told me that the EPA regulates carbon monoxide and hydrocarbon emissions for small scooters like mine. And surprisingly, scooters are big emitters of those pollutants.
3: So if you compare it to small scooter, emissions would be higher than a, a comparable car if you're driving the same distance down the road.
0: Scooters have higher emissions than cars? They've certainly come a long way, though. Older scooters have two-stroke engines, like the ones found in lawnmowers and chainsaws. Those machines belch smoke because they burn a small amount of oil along with fuel. Most new scooters have four-stroke engines, which are much cleaner. But cars have more room for emissions control technologies, says Simon.
3: You know, you pop the hood of your car and look at your engine and the computer controls and the catalytic converter that's on the car. You get significant amount of controls there,
0: My scooter meets European emission limits, which are stricter than EPA standards. So, just based on those limits, my scooter emits more hydrocarbons, but less carbon monoxide than new American cars. That's a relief. I can calculate exactly how much CO2 and carbon monoxide I'm saving by switching to a scooter. And there are other pluses to riding a two-wheeler.
6: Easy on gas, most likely more easy on the pocket, adventurous, fun.
0: Back at the library, A young college student agrees that two wheels are the way to go.
3: Nowadays, I really don't want a car, especially my own, because maintenance is high and gas is high. I want something simple, like a bike or a scooter.
0: I'm certainly paying less for gas these days, but there are other things I can't put a price on, the wind in my face and the smiles from strangers.
1: Puttering into the sunset is Prachi Patel-Pred. Her report comes to us courtesy of Spectrum Radio, the broadcast edition of IEEE Spectrum, magazine of Technology Insiders. Have you ever been alone... I mean, really alone, for a long time? Well, Robert Cull has, in 2001, Cull set up camp on a remote island in the Patagonia wilderness, and he lived there alone for a year. Cull recounts his journey in his new book, Solitude, Seeking Wisdom in Extremes. And Robert Cull, welcome back to Civilization and to Living on Earth.
8: Thanks for inviting me, Bruce. It's good to be
1: here. Gosh, a year is an awfully long time to live by yourself in the wilderness. Why Pentagonium?
8: There's nobody there. Um, I considered the coast of British Columbia, but as I talked to people, I recognized there were a lot of boats and airplanes and kayakers and logging and mining. I'd come up the coast of southern Chile several years before. There's a ferry that plies the coast, and completely fell in love with it. It's, it's just amazing down there. It's incredibly beautiful. And on this ferry for three and a half days, we went by one tiny little town. And there were no airplanes, no other boats, no mining, no logging. And I thought, this is a place. This is remote enough that I could literally be here for a year and not see
1: anyone. But to be human, does it not take other people, other humans?
8: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I'm not arguing to live in solitude forever, um, but it seems to me that we've gone overboard Some, in some sense. That some psychologists argue that the only way to be human is through relationship with other people. So I find that to be fully human is not only about relationship with other people, but it's about coming into a deeper relationship with ourselves and with the non-human world and with this, this mysterious presence. And for me... When I come into a deeper relationship with myself through in solitude, it opens me more to, to being able to be in more profound and intimate relationship with other people when I come back.
1: But you weren't alone. You had a, a cat.
8: Yeah, I did have a cat. It wasn't my plan. I didn't want to take a, a pet. That's It changes the dynamic to have a pet, and it wasn't my intention at all. But the government officials in southern Chile told me there was a lot of red tide there. And if I wanted to eat any shellfish, which I intended to, um, I needed to to have a way of testing to see if they were poisonous. And I wouldn't have access to the government reports. So what local people do is, is they use a cat as a guinea pig. They feed suspect shellfish to a cat. And if the cat dies, they don't eat it themselves. But, of course, it didn't work. We got very close, very quickly. And instead of cat testing shellfish for me, I was out catching fish for cat.
1: You bring plenty of stuff with you. You have, what, a satellite phone, two laptops, a stove, a chainsaw, a motorboat, a GPS.
8: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it it was a high-tech trip. It was very different from other retreats into solitude. Often I go with a canoe and a tent and a fishing rod sort of a thing. And um, this time one thing led to another. It was a very harsh climate. And so uh, I was going to need a fair amount of firewood, and I thought, well, I need a chainsaw, and I needed an outboard because all the wood had to come in by boat. And so once I took that, that led to a whole bunch of other stuff.
1: You you go on this journey, and you're living alone in Patagonia, and and I'm wondering, given the harsh conditions, does suffering enter into this? Was it the goal? Yeah.
8: Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of pain. Um, one of the interesting things is I'm a wuss. I, I'm a, a real uh, – I don't like pain. Some people – I know people that just suck it up. and, and But I'm full of uh, – my journal was just so full of whining about, oh, it's so hard and I hurt. And I fell hard a few times and I tore the rotator cuffs in both shoulders. And that's a, a very painful injury. So there were months when I was just in a lot of pain and I couldn't stop working. I had to, for survival, I had to keep working. And then later on, I there was emotional pain because I started seeing things about myself that I didn't really like. One of the challenges... And opportunities of solitude is, is this need to face yourself. There are no easy escapes. And so stuff comes up, shadow material that we we normally repress or look away from or avoid, and you're, you're kind of face-to-face with it, and you need to deal with it. And so there was a lot of inner rage that came boiling up, a lot of fear, a lot of frustration, depression, and, and I had to simply be with that Another huge part of the the suffering was my expectations. I figured, you know, this notion of going off in, into a, an isolated island, that it would be blissful and I'd be filled with joy and light. And there were certainly times of that, but there were also some really dark, painful times of feeling completely alienated from the world and that the, the universe was malevolent and out, out to destroy me. And of uh, the wind was this this actual presence that was intent on my destruction.
1: Did you ever feel like you were going crazy? Yeah. Yeah.
8: Um, Did you go crazy? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, who would notice? There's that kind of (laughs) of feeling, you know. (laughs) You have to be a little crazy to do something like this, right?
1: So your book, is it about me reading it or is it about you writing it? It's about... Us
8: journeying into solitude together, I didn't want to just describe my own journey into solitude, but to invite readers to come there with me and also to invite readers to reflect on their own lives wherever they're living. Because I don't think it's a particularly heroic thing to do to go live alone. In the wilderness for a year, I think that all our lives are heroic. If we live fully wherever we are, whether it's raising kids or going to work, that's an incredibly challenging process, and it, it takes everything we've got. What we're looking for, we already have. I mean, this is the irony. You know, we keep looking for, for simple answers. We keep looking to spiritual teachers or, or psychologists. Well, well, just tell me what I have to do. Give me this one, two, three step to fix myself. And and I don't think it works that way. When
1: you were out there on the coast, on, on this lonely, well, alone on this island, was there music in your mind?
8: Sometimes, um, just short short phrases. The the Navajo beauty song came through my my mind for a while and um, Simon and Garfunkel I am a rock I am an island especially when I was out in my boat on a calm day um, standing in the front of the boat just zooming through this unfolding universe this expanding universe on a, a glassy day it was remarkable to be able uh, just nobody around the glaciers hanging, hanging glaciers and, and waterways and islands and spe- just just an incredibly beautiful area Uh, And a song would would roll through me. And sometimes these songs would just repeat and repeat and repeat. And uh, it's noisy inside the mind. That's one of the things of solitude. It, It gives you the opportunity to hear what's always in there, the kind of repetitive nonsense, and to have the opportunity to watch that clearly and little by little let go of that and and settle into an inner silence is extraordinarily beautiful. It's it's a joyful experience.
1: Well Robert Cole, I want to thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
8: Oh it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on.
1: Robert Cole's new book is called Solitude Seeking Wisdom in Extremes.
4: And the rock feels no pain and an island never cries.
1: On the next Living on Earth, what you think the new president's environmental priority should be. We want to know, so tell us. What should the new administration do about energy and the environment in its first 100 days? Our email address is comments at LOE.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-218-9988. That's comments at LOE.org or 1-800-218-9988 will feature your ideas next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Vascom, Eileen Volinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Sandra Larson and Jesse Martin. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwit is our executive producer. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks
4: for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation. The Town Creek Foundation. The Oak Foundation. Supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And PAX World Mutual Funds. Socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PAX World for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI,
9: Public Radio International.